Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 11. Book of Revelation, chapter 11. And verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And our subject this evening is the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet. Well, Just to recap, in our uh, studies in the book of Revelation, we are almost at the very end of the third cycle. We are, I'm sure, very aware now that we are studying this book in the uh, correct way as we would see it. Uh, The book of Revelation is a series of cycles, views on the same thing that are repeated to us And uh, each time they are repeated, they show us something new. And that thing is the gospel age. We see new features of the gospel age with every cycle. And uh, well, in our last study, we looked at this chapter and the identity of the two witnesses right at the heart of this chapter. And we ascertained that the uh, two witnesses represent the church very simply, and the witness of the church. In the Old Testament, two witnesses were required to uh, uh, make a, a judgment legally binding. There had to be two witnesses, at least, for it to be a valid witness and testimony. And so that speaks of the church. The church is, of course, a valid witness. It has that authority The witness of the church will indeed be employed to judge the world at the very end of time. So the two witnesses, it's speaking about the nature of the church and the power that it has, that legal power to witness to all those around it. And then, of course, it speaks of the missionary witness of the church. And uh, we considered how the Lord Jesus Christ sent out his disciples in twos, in pairs, to be a witness to those around him. So the two witnesses, they refer to the church and uh, specifically the witness of the church. And it's a powerful witness. Remember, uh, there were many examples drawn from the Old Testament prophets, from Elijah and Moses. And uh, the message really was this, that the New Testament church would have the same authority as the Old Testament prophets. The same God who was with Elijah and Moses would be with them. And uh, so uh, the church has the same power to utter its preaching and uh, its judgments upon all those who would hear it. But when the testimony is finished, the witness or the two witnesses will be put to death. And uh, well, this was something we considered last week how uh, the beast that uh, ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, verse 7, 
shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And uh, really this is symbolically presenting to us that in the very last days there will be a great time of sin and wickedness in this world fueled by Satan and his influence, a great turning away from God, a great uh, delighting in wickedness. And uh, the culmination of that will be a great attack on the church, so much so that the church will lose its uh, witness. The church will be pushed out. The things of God will be pushed out of uh, education, for example, pushed out of culture. The preaching of the church will be so watered down that it will have lost all of its power. The witness will be gone as though the church is like a, a corpse in the midst of the world. That's how it's presented here. And the world will rejoice to have got rid of the church. What a wonderful thing the world will think it is. The church has tormented the world for so long with its preaching about judgment and about repentance and having to be born again. When the witness of the church is dead, they will rejoice. They will be happy and glad because the church tormented them that dwelt on the earth. But just as the Lord Jesus Christ, while well, he died and rose again, so too we see the church here in uh, a great and glorious sense. Verse 11, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. That is where we left off last time. And uh, well, these things, they're very intriguing. They have been interpreted in a number of different ways, and I'll speak about that a little later. So these are quite difficult uh, verses to interpret, but uh, we are going to, as always, opt for the simplest version of the interpretation. But uh, what does this mean? The witness of the church has gone, is dead, but after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet. They're resurrected. Well, first of all, let's uh, look at these three days and a half. We also read uh, that uh, number in verse nine, three and a half days, and they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Now, three and a half, you don't have to be very good at maths to realize that three and a half is half of seven. And uh, we've already spoken about seven being a number of completeness and uh, divine perfection. So three and a half obviously means something that is not complete or that is incomplete. And what we take from that in this uh, particular context is that Satan's little season, this time that he has influencing the world, it's only a little season. Satan cannot fully accomplish his great goal. His great uh, mission, of course, is to wipe out the church entirely so that the church is dead, not just for three days and a half, but forever. But he can't. 
He can only half succeed. He only has a half victory, which in fact is no victory at all. So three days and a half, that symbolizes to us, that communicates to us that Satan cannot complete his work. It's a symbol of incompleteness. And then after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Well, when does this happen? When is the church, as it were, resurrected? Well, it is uh, clear, as far as I can see it, that these things that will uh, take place or will be presented to us in the following verses, they all take place at the same time, which is namely when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We're coming to the end of the third cycle, and every cycle ends with Christ returning and the judgment taking place. This is what this section is all about. And, uh, well, verse 12, we'll, uh, we'll get a greater sense of this. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has returned and he is the one who is saying to the believers who remain on the church in the on the earth, even though the uh, the witness of the church is dead, there will still be sincere believers on the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And he is the one who calls them up, and not just them, of course, who are alive, but those who have died. They will uh, rise from the dead, as it were. They will be resurrected. And uh, this is, of course, what we uh, read in our earlier scripture reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, you can turn to it if you want to. I'll just uh, uh, read a portion of that chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, verse 16. Uh, really, this is another presentation or depiction of that final scene. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And these shouts, these voices, they're all saying the same thing, really, come up hither. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, those who have died. Well, in the, the time of the church at Thessalonica, the early church they uh, were expecting the return of Christ just as we are. But they had a problem. They uh, uh, thought that those Christians who had died were going to miss out, <clears throat> excuse me, on the, uh, on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They thought, well, we are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, but those who have died, they're not going to see them, are they? So the Apostle Paul says, don't be so foolish. Those who have died, the dead in Christ, shall rise first. They'll be with you when Christ comes. In fact, they'll be at the front of the queue. You don't have to worry about that. But then verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So this 
really is uh, the picture that is presented to us. The Lord will come. He will say to us, come up hither. And uh, we will all, each and every believer in Christ, those who have been and gone, and those who are still alive when Christ comes, we will go to be with the Lord in the air. It will be, if I can put it this way, a last act of witness, a last act of witness from the church. But it will be too late to repent if uh, there are people and there will be people who have not repented. It will be too late for them. The saints are taken up and then verse 13 in Revelation 11 and the same hour, this is the same time, all of this is taking place, not different times. The saints are being taken up to be with the Lord, all of them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, now, again, this verse is uh, has a number of different interpretations, and even the uh, commentators that I have been using <clears throat> seem to be divided on how to interpret this uh, verse, and they seem to be very uncertain. Suddenly they start using words like probably this means this or probably this means that. So it's not particularly helpful for myself. So I have to uh, choose what is the uh, simplest and safest interpretation here. Uh, some of the interpreters will say that uh, what is uh, being presented here is a literal catastrophe, a literal earthquake that uh, uh, affects so much of the world and many die as a final warning, a final judgment just before the Lord Jesus Christ appears. But uh, I don't think that's really in keeping with the general nature of the book of Revelation to uh, suddenly hone in on a specific incident just before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. I think it's safer to see this again in symbolic terms, because again, we have the symbolic numbers here. There's the 10th part of the city. That's a symbolic number. And again, we have 7,000. Well, that is surely a symbolic number, 7,000. And what I believe is being presented here, remember this is at the same time as the saints are being taken up. Well, this is the judgment of the ungodly. 7,000 were slain. The judgment of all those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will perish. 7,000. Seven is a number of uh, uh, completeness, again, divine perfection. And what is being presented here is that judgment will be perfectly executed. 7,000 will perish. Justice will be done. Perfect justice. So this all happens at the same time. The saints go to be with the Lord and all the lost, well, they will face that eternal judgment because they did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the tenth part of the city, well, uh, the city represents the unbelieving world. It's the, uh, the same city that is mentioned in verse uh, 9, or verse 8 rather, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. That's the unbelieving world. That's uh, the city that is being described here. And the tenth part of the city fell. Well, what that means, the tenth part, <clears throat> is that the power of that city, the power that Satan has, his influence, his dominion, is taken away. The tenth part, the part that God gave him. Satan, he only had power at the very end of time because God, in a sense, gave him the power. God took away his hand of restraint. I was preaching at Baldock recently, and uh, I made this point and this illustration that uh, Satan is much like a, a wild dog on a leash. And it's not a, a perfectly adequate illustration, but if you can imagine a wild dog on a leash, but God has the power to either rein him in or set him loose. And, uh, well, any power that Satan had at the end, it's the power that God has given him. God gave him the tenth part. And ten, of course, just to remind you, is uh, symbolic and has been symbolic in this book of something that God gives, like the Ten Commandments, like the Ten Plagues. This is something that God has given and God gave Satan the power, but now he takes it away. The power of the city falls. So the power of Satan is gone, and then all those who were taken in by Satan were slain. And uh, just to uh, further corroborate that interpretation, if we just go to chapter 19, and the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, you have virtually the same picture, the power taken away first, and then those who believe are slain. Chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was taken, the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, the uh, counterfeit church that we will look at later. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The power is done away with first. And then verse 21, And then the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So it's the same picture the uh, power Satan is dealt with, the Antichrist, and then all the unbelievers. And it's the same in uh, chapter 11, the tenth part of the city. The power of the city is gone. And then the 7,000, symbolic perhaps of the, uh, uh, of the unbelieving world. And uh, they uh, perish because of their unbelief. And then at the very end of that verse in chapter 11, verse 13, 
and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, that may uh, sound unusual. Those who uh, are condemned, they will give glory to the God of heaven. Yes, they will give glory to the God of heaven. Why? We often say that the last day of your life is the last day of unbelief. Every, un <clears throat> excuse me, every unbeliever will at the very end of their life, they will be brought to belief. They will believe in uh, God. But it will be too late for them. But this is a picture here of how, well, the unbelievers finally, they acknowledge the Lord. They give glory to the God of heaven. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And, uh, well, it is a, a very tragic scene. But this is why we urge the world to come to Christ while there is yet time. <clears throat> but verse 14, moving on. And uh, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So the second woe uh, lasted from uh, uh, chapter 9. It was the, the sounding of the sixth trumpet, which included the great uh, conflicts in war and the death of the two witnesses. But now the second woe is past, but there's one more woe to come. And uh, this is the judgment itself that will be presented to us. The seventh angel sounded the seventh trumpet, verse 15. And there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Great voices in heaven, most likely uh, angelic voices. And uh, really what they are doing in verse 15, they are affirming the sovereignty of God. They are worshipping God and proclaiming uh, to heaven that he is in charge of everything. He rules over everything. Well, the Lord uh, has always been in charge. It's not uh, just at the end of time that God will have sovereignty over everything. God is always in charge. But uh, in the present time, it's not always apparent. At the present time, there is uh, opposition to God. There are unbelievers in the world. There is rebellion against God. There is unbelief. There are people who uh, don't even think that God exists. And so how could God ever be in charge? There are all these things in this world. But when God makes an end of all things, when Christ returns, then it will be so clear. It will be so plain. We will see God's sovereignty in uh, a greater sight, with greater clarity, with greater joy, with greater praise. It will be a wonderful thing to see the kingdoms of this world. They never belonged to men. They always were under the sovereign control of God and Christ. And this will be a joyous thing. And verse 16, the four and 20 elders who represent the church 
just to remind you, the whole church which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, worshipped at this glorious reminder of God's sovereignty. The church responds with great praise. But then verse 18 or rather verse 17, I've missed out at a verse saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Well, this is the worship song of the church, again, acknowledging the Lord for his sovereignty. And, uh, uh, well, this is a tremendous thing. But verse 18, then we have a view of the judgment once again presented to us, but closer in this time. The nations were angry and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Wrath is meted out to those who do not believe, but there is also reward given to the servants of the Lord, the prophets and to the saints and them that fear the name of God, small and great. That's a wonderful thing to read there, small and great. Not just those who have been ministers or pastors, not just those who have been spiritually strong, but those who perhaps have struggled throughout their Christian lives, those who have been spiritually weak and had all sorts of problems and perhaps even doubted their salvation, they will be there, they will be blessed, small and great. All they need is faith, simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be there. They will receive their reward. But there's wrath. For the unbeliever. So this is a combination, a paradox, as it were. Yes, it's a day of judgment, a day of wrath, but it's also a day of great reward. And this is consistent with the Lord's teaching in uh, the Gospels. I turn uh, uh, just to Matthew chapter 25. You don't have to turn there with me, but I just uh, read out uh, some passages or some verses, just to uh, help you make the parallel. Matthew 25 and uh, verse uh, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the reward of the saints. But then you go down to verse 41, on the same day at the same time, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
that contrast, that paradox, the day of judgment, a day of wrath and reward. And then if we return back to the uh, book of Revelation and uh, uh, just look at the final verse, verse 19, we read there, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Well, for the people of God, this is so wonderful and glorious. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. This communicates to us wonderful and glorious access to God, such as we have never had before. The temple is open. The Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is seen. It's no longer hidden. In the Jewish temple, the Ark was hidden in the most holy place. But now we dwell in the most holy place. When we go to be with the Lord, we are in the most holy place with God. This speaks of access. The ark is seen. The temple is open. And this is so wonderful for us. This is what we have desired all the time that we have been here on earth. This is the fulfillment of all the promises, even Old Testament promises. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 22, the Lord spoke to the Israelites, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. The mercy seat which was upon the ark, upon the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat upon which the high priest would sprinkle the the blood of the animal sacrifices on the day of atonement to make atonement for the nation. But it's not the blood of animals that makes atonement. It's the blood of Christ. That is what gives us true and lasting, eternal fellowship and communion with God. The blood of Christ. And that's where God will meet with us forever, eternally. That's why the ark is seen here. And it's a glorious picture for those who are saved. But for those who are not saved... Well, we read at the very end of the verse, there's lightnings, voices, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail, all symbols of judgment. The Ark of the Covenant, remember, it also spoke of God's holiness, and it also contained the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And so for an unbeliever, What the Ark of the Testament represents is judgment. God's holiness and his judgment against sin. That's what it represents to unbelievers. And that's why at the very end of the chapter, there are thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. These things, well, they are so solemn. And this, well, again, wrath and reward. Wrath and reward. And this is the choice that we set before people. What do you want to experience at the end of time? Do you want to experience the wrath of God? Or do you want to know the reward of God? 
Moses in the Old Testament again, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. And the same picture is here in the book of Revelation. Life or death, blessing or cursing, which one will we choose? Well, these things, they bring us to the very end of the third cycle next week. God willing, we will embark upon the fourth cycle of this tremendous book.